Welcome to The World on Fire. I'm your host, Greg Wilpert. Sunday, January 1st, Brazil inaugurated the former labor union leader and Workers' Party president, Luiz Inácio da Silva, also known as Lula, for a third non-consecutive term as president of Brazil. Last October, Lula narrowly won a runoff election against the right-wing incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, with 50.9% of the vote. Lula had previously served two consecutive terms as president from 2003 to 2010 during Latin America's first so-called pink tide of the early 2000s. Then his successor, Dilma Rousseff, also from the Workers' Party, was removed from office in 2016 in what many have considered to be a legislative coup. Lula himself faced prosecution for corruption and was sent to prison as he was preparing to run for president in 2018. After nearly two years imprisonment, he was exonerated and able to run for president for a third time. Sunday's inauguration was in many ways a historic event, not only because of the unusual circumstances that led to it, but also because Lula presented a cabinet in which one out of three members are women. Joining me now to take a look at what Lula's third term as president might mean is Michael Fox. He's a freelance journalist, former editor of the journal NACLA, and host and producer of the podcast Brazil on Fire. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. Thanks for having me, Greg. So, first of all, just how significant would you say is Lula's inauguration for a third non-consecutive term as president of Brazil? I mean, it's a, it's a complete 180, right? It's, it's a complete about-face. It's huge. It's a complete game-changer for Brazil. Uh, the inauguration itself uh, was powerful, 200,000 people in the streets. Uh, so many people are talking about hope, talking about a return to democracy, like, like you mentioned. You know, there was the coup against Dilma Rousseff. And then many people saw Lula's jailing and then Bolsonaro's elections, all other kind of layers of the coup. And then now Brazil, this is the return to, to democracy, the return of hope. Um, you know, as all of your listeners know, Bolsonaro brought in so many different things, white supremacy, fake news, uh, attacks against black, indigenous uh, communities. And so this is just, uh, a, it, it opens the door for a complete about face to what we've had until now. And the inauguration really kind of laid, um, you know, laid the groundwork for that. So let's take a look at the cabinet, as a, first of all. As I mentioned, one out of three members are women, more or less. I think it was 11 out of 30-something, uh, um, which is no doubt the highest number, I think, um, of uh, any cabinet in Brazil's history. What do we know about some of the main members of this cabinet, and what can we expect from them? Well, the first thing is uh, the Workers' Party, which is obviously Lula's party, it came into power with a very broad coalition of kind of left, center, and center-right parties. Remember that his running mate, Vice President Geraldo Alckmin, uh, was his arch nemesis back in 2006. He's the guy who ran against Lula back in 2006. So he really went across the aisle to bring in everybody within kind of the unity democracy camp. And that's what like his whole campaign was about, was really about bringing everybody in as much as possible. Uh, and so, of course, that's what his, his cabinet also looks like. So a quarter of those seats have gone to Workers' Party members, the nine seats. And many of those, uh, those ministries are really key. Those are kind of the key ministries for Lula. So that's the makeup. You have roughly nine um, Workers' Party 
ministries, and then the rest of the ministries are divided up amongst those other parties, right? The three uh, ministries to each of the different parties. Now, amongst the Workers' Party, you have uh, some extremely important ministries, like the Ministry of Finance, with Fernando Ladaji, who is, you know, the former presidential candidate who ran for the Workers' Party when, of course, Lula was taken out in 2018. You have Flavio Dino, who is the former governor of Maranhão, extremely important, battled Bolsonaro, one of the most arch uh, nemesis of Bolsonaro during during his time in power, and he is now the Minister of Justice. So that's amongst the Workers' Party. You also have, and this is really, really key, Greg, all of these new ministries, uh, several of them, and that includes the Ministry of Labor, the Ministry of Women, the Ministry of, of, of Racial Justice, and actually the woman, who uh, Maria Lifranco's sister, is now the Minister of, 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 of Racial Justice, so this is, or Racial Equality. So this is extremely important because it brings in all these other sectors, and the left won big in a lot of these different areas. Now, the big thing that a lot of people are talking about is, of course, the Environment Ministry. Marina Silva's back. Remember, she was Environment Minister for six or seven years under Lula. She was really key in pushing back on deforestation, cutting deforestation in half in those first two years of Lula's first government. Uh, and then they had a falling out. She ran for president several times. And then they've, 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 they've built their relationships again. Uh, and that's been one of the most exciting things about Lula's campaign and seeing her back on stage. In fact, she was just uh, sworn in just yesterday. Uh, and the, the line for her swearing in moment or for her her opening ceremony was the longest of all the different ceremonies for, for ministers that are happening now. And of course, the other really big key ministry that's new is the, the Ministry of, of Indigenous Peoples, uh, led by Sonia Wajajara, who is one of the, the most important indigenous rights activists in Brazil. She's the leader of APIBI, which is the largest indigenous organization. Uh, and of course, she was battling um, just constantly against the, the Bolsonaro government. And she is now the Minister of Indigenous Peoples. And just to put this in perspective, there was, there was first off, there was never a Ministry of Indigenous Peoples. And there was never an indigenous minister before. And in fact, she was the very first minister to be sworn in on Sunday. Uh, and she kind of walked up and she wore the feathered headdress. And when they took the picture, picture of the ministers there with Lula. She was standing right beside Lula. On the other side of Vice President Gerald Walkman was uh, Agnelli Franco, who is Marielis Franco's sister. So this is, a, this is a very, very telling moment that Lula is pushing for diversity. He's pushing for inclusiveness. Uh, and not just within the ministry itself, but Lula actually went out and asked um, Joania Wapishana, if she would be the head of FUNAI. Now, FUNAI is kind of the Indigenous Affairs Agency. It always has been, uh, although the name was the Indian Affairs Agency, and it's now the, the National Foundation for Indigenous People. So they've changed the name. She's now the head of that, and that agency is now underneath the, 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 the Ministry of Indigenous Peoples. Extremely important pushes. They've already been talking about wanting to um, demarcate 13 different indigenous territories just within this first month. So there's a lot of things have happened. The cabinet is actually really exciting. It's way more progressive than even people thought was possible. Uh, and there is another person that I think is important. That's Simone Tibet, who is now the minister of, of planning and budget. Now, she was key because she, was, she got the third most number of votes in this election. She's from the 
PMDB or the MDB party, which is a centrist right party. But man, after that first round election, she came out just battling for Lula. You know, she came out attacking Bolsonaro for his secret budget, saying it was it was potentially the largest corruption scandal in the world at the time. And she was really, really active in a way that a lot of people did not expect. So she now has uh, her own cabinet seat. And, and so it's really exciting. It's exciting for the left to see so many different people moving in um, into power, into Lula's cabinet uh, with, with really clear visions for they want to take this and exciting for, for, for kind of the progressive movement looking forward here. You mentioned just quickly uh, Maria Franco and uh, her sister Anya being uh, in the cabinet. Uh, just because many people might not know who Maria is, can you just summarize briefly who she is and what the significance of her sister being in the cabinet is? That's right. So Marielle was a black uh, lesbian city council member from Rio de Janeiro who was gunned down in 2018. Uh, and it was just it sent shockwaves around Brazil because it showed that there was just no a no justice and no respect for black communities and black uh, politicians and leadership. So protests happened across the country. It was like, you know, a Black Lives Matter moment in Brazil uh, and, and around the world, really, um, because of what she symbolized for Brazil. And it continues to have reverberations. Her name continues to be extremely important. Uh, and so Aniele, her sister, then created the, the Marielle Franco Institute um, and has been trying to kind of lift up her name ever since uh, and that image. So the fact that she is now the Minister of Racial Equality is just so key. It's so, so important. And to put this into perspective, I mean, when Bolsonaro, back in 2018, when Bolsonaro was running for power, there were Bolsonaro-allied uh, people who, who actually won office, legislatures who won office, who actually had picked up signs, Marielle signs, and they were breaking them in this image of showing that Marielle just isn't, for Bolsonaro and for his allies, she was just worthless. Right. And the image of 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 black communities, LGBT communities, indigenous Kilombola communities are worth just nothing in this country. And that's what we've seen so much um, pushback uh, over the last four years, so much resistance from from social movements. And right now, that's why people are just so ecstatic about the potential for so much hope uh, and possibility in in this new Lula government. Hmm. Now, what do you think uh, can we expect from Lula in terms of his domestic policies? Uh, what, what's the, what are the priorities? And also, don't you? And do you think that his scope of action might be uh, rather limited, given that uh, he does not have a majority in Congress? Um, that is, would he even be able to pass any significant new laws? So, great questions. Um, first off, he's been very clear about what his focus is on domestic policies and its poverty alleviation. That's what it was in his first two terms. He wants to again lift people out of poverty because, of course, we've seen uh, poverty numbers have risen, inequality has risen, hunger has risen. And this is one of the things he actually broke down crying, Greg, during his inauguration speech when he talked about uh, people asking for money on the street uh, and people begging for food because this is not the country that he left when he left office with 87% uh, approval rating back in 2000 and early 2010. Uh, you know, Brazil had eliminated poverty. Dilma did even more on, on, on that step. So this is something that's really key. He's talking about bringing back health uh, and bringing back SUS, the, the public, you know, um, the, the state, state health care system, because, of course, that was gutted under Bolsonaro. So much of his focus, particularly in these first com coming months, is going to be to, to renew those systems and those agencies that were gutted and undone by Bolsonaro. And we've already seen this, actually, um, just in his decrees within the first 24 hours. So he blocked eight different 
privatizations of, of state businesses, including Petrobras, the state oil company, including Cogeus, right, the, the, the mail service. Um, he redid Bolson, Bolsonaro's previous decree about that was liberalizing and freeing up arms for people around the country. So he's tightening those. He eliminated the, um, the hundred year sigilio or confidentiality that Bolsonaro had put into place for many things, kind of whatever Bolsonaro wanted to do, and passed seven different environmental decrees, including blocking mining on indigenous territories and opening up the Amazon fund again for people to be able to, to, to invest in Brazil from, from different countries. So that's just what he's done just within it, like his first 24 hours. But his domestic policy is very much going to be focused on poverty alleviation. He's also talked about, of course, wanting to stop Amazon deforestation. But at the same time, he wants to keep the economy running. This is what he was really good at back in his first two terms, was he wasn't, he didn't lift people out of poverty and and then do it as a detriment to Brazilian businesses. But he actually lifted Brazilian businesses, were able to get them abroad uh, and, and, you know, and, and keep them making even more money than ever before. And that's something he wants to continue to do. He said that, of course, particularly with the Amazon, that, look, we can continue to be the breadbasket of the world uh, and not deforest not one more meter of, of forest. We don't have to cut down any, not one more tree. So that's really important for him. And part of that is being able to throw money and throw resources and funds for local farmers and local small farmers. Cause he wants to, that was, that was key. That's something he did a lot back um, in his first two terms. It's something that he's going to want to do again is really help small agricultural farming at the same time as it focused on his poverty alleviation stuff. He's already reinstituted Bolsa Familia, which is of course his conditional cash transfer program back from the 2000s. Uh, and he says that uh, poor families are going to be receiving 600 reais a month, just over $100. So these are all really key things which aren't actually that hard for him to do that he's been able to do so far. Um, of course, he can't cut kind of the, he, he can't knock out the knees of, you know, important industry, right, for agribusiness and things like that. So that's going to be a challenge he's going to have, uh, and in, in particularly even a challenge within his own cabinet, finding the way that he's going to be able to, to push to protect the Amazon, support indigenous issues, issues, support, say, the MST and local small farmers at the same time as he's not turning his back on the big agribusiness. The other thing that was really gutted under Bolsonaro, Greg, um, is industry. I mean, this was something that, that Bolsonaro basically just turned his back on and the whole idea under Bolsonaro was to was to sell off Brazilian industry as much as possible and to really focus on commodities markets and selling markets for export abroad that was his big thing and this is I mean Lula comes from a completely different perspective developmentalism saying no we actually need Brazilian industry we need Brazilian businesses and we want to help to jumpstart that around the country so it's not those two, those two visions for the world of poverty alleviation and also developmentalism of we need to, we need to build up Brazilian businesses again, they're not contradictions. They go hand in hand. Now, like what you just asked about how is he going to do this with obviously a conservative Congress? And this is a big question. I think it's maybe one of the biggest questions that a lot of people are asking because, as you know, so many people came in. Bolsonaro allies, uh, and it is a very, very conservative Congress. But at the same time, the Workers' Party has, it doesn't have its back against the wall. In fact, the PT at this point has as many people in Congress as it did before the whole car wash Lava Jato scandal. So it was very clear in this last election that people were more than willing to vote for the PT at the same levels that they were doing under the early Dilma years and under the Lula years. So that is one point that a lot of people have missed when they've been talking about kind of the, the, the makeup of the legislature. But there is going to be a conservative legislature. One other key thing that's really important, though, many of the allies of Bolsonaro in Congress 
are not used to doing opposition. They're from centrist parties, what's known as the Centrone. And these are the parties like the PMDB, or maybe they've jumped ship and joined more Bolsonaro parties. But these are individuals that are used to being in the middle and always, always joining whoever is in power. Right. Uh, and so this is going to be a really interesting thing to see how they play opposition or don't play opposition in the coming months, in the coming years. I think a lot of this is going to depend on how strong Bolsonaro himself is. And I know that we're going to get into this, but Bolsonaro has, you know, he has left the country. He left the country early. Some people will say he fled. Um, and many of his supporters and his allies are not happy with him because they feel like he's just completely turned his back on them. So the question of Bolsonaro is going to be a really important question going forward, and we don't know how to answer that right now. But in terms of the makeup of the, legis of the legislature, I mean, Lula still has every possibility of pushing through things that he thinks is important because not everything is done via the legislature. Not everything's done in Congress and the Senate. I mean, look, what we've, we've already seen just this week from his decrees uh, have been extremely important. He's going to continue to do those. And the, it was in the same way that Bolsonaro, he also ruled very much by decree in a lot of times. And so Lula is actually, I think Lula is going to be able to do a lot more. He already has. He already has. But he's going to be able to do a lot more uh, than many people give him credit for. Now, is he going to be able to completely legalize abortion? No, that's not an issue he's going to get traction on. And why is that? Because the evangelical movement has grown substantially. That's not something he's going to be able to move on at this point. But he's able to move on so many other things. And those have been his focus. He's been very, very clear about, you know, for months. Okay, I want to turn now to Luda's international policies, where he presumably has a little bit more uh, leeway than he does for domestic issues. Uh, during the first pink tide, Lula, together with uh, former President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, uh, they were instrumental in setting up numerous regional new bodies, such as CELAC, uh, the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, uh, uh, and UNASUR, the Union of uh, South American Nations, which both fell apart in the when the first pink tide ended. Now, what can we expect from Lula this time around? Well, this is really, really exciting. And, and I, I mean, for folks internationally, it's one of the most exciting pieces. Because, of course, under Bolsonaro, uh, he's had, uh, Brazil has had a very, not just U.S.-focused, but Trump-focused foreign policy, right? It's whatever is good for Trump is good for us. And, of course, that left kind of Brazil in the air over the last two years, not knowing exactly what to do once, once Trump was out of office in the 2000, or, you know, two years ago. Um, but foreign policy now is going to be just a complete about face. Uh, and Lula's already said that, and so has his incoming foreign minister, Mauro Vieira, who was actually foreign minister under Dilma Rousseff. Um, he's been very clear that he was instructed to focus on three key elements to begin with by Lula, and that's first South America ties, then Latin American ties, and then African ties. Uh, and those, of course, were really important for Lula back in his back in the 2000s. His whole thing was South-South relations, regional integration, building those relationships with Africa for the first time. I mean, he opened up 35 new embassies during his two administrations during those years, and he traveled to more than 50 countries in eight years. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And he is the great diplomat. And we saw that at COP27 when he was there. You know, it was only two weeks after his his election, he still wasn't even present yet. And he was received like, you know, a rock star in, uh, in Egypt. And so that's going to be really key for Brazil is kind of lifting Brazil back up onto the international sphere, being able to dialogue with 
the, with, the, with the world's richest countries, but not bowing down to those richest countries and really be able to, to keep Brazil on kind of this international level and, 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 and have a relationship with everybody. We saw that in the inauguration. I think this is really interesting, Greg. 65 different foreign delegations came to Lula's inauguration, 19 different heads of state. We've never seen anything like this before. And during that, while, while we were watching the, the kind of the passing of the different foreign delegations, first you saw Ukraine, the Ukrainian delegation come and shake hands with Lula. And right behind them was Russia. So it shows how you have, you know, Lula is willing to dialogue with everybody in the world. He's, he's going to have solid relationships with everybody. He is, you know, the, the, the great negotiator in that sense. Now, regional integration and South-South ties is one of the most exciting things um, about this whole question because it's just, I mean, this is pink tide 2.0 really, except for the fact that we don't have kind of the revolutionary socialism of the 21st century. It's not the revolutionary pink tide. Um, and many of those governments maybe came to power kind of eking it out just like Lula. He won by 2 million votes, 2%, right? But still most of the countries in Latin America at this point are left or left leaning. And that's going to be really important. Lula has already said he wants to, he wants to go, um, full speed ahead with UNASUR. The, he, most likely, his first international meeting is going to be in Argentina at the Salat Conference, where he's going to re-announce um, Brazil's re-entry into the international meeting. And many people are talking about the importance of, of a new UNASUR and the possibility of, of reinvigorating UNASUR or, or kickstarting again like we haven't seen in a very long time. So this is really, really key, uh, you know. And in fact, what, what, what Lula's foreign minister said and Lula has said as well is not just building these bodies but going even further is what they want to see. Um, you know, what does regional integration look like, you know, going beyond what we saw back in the 2000s. Uh, and so it's, it, it's really exciting. We're going to see what these next couple of months, you know, mean and what they look like as, you know, the different countries are dialoguing and what. But just to give you a, a little bit of sense of what we're looking at, six different um, heads of state leaders met with Lula just the day after his inauguration talking about how do we go forward? What are we doing? What does trade look like? What do our relations look like? So that's what we're going to be seeing in the coming months. I just want to turn uh, briefly to the point that you made earlier about the narrow victory that Lula had. Um, and the fact, of course, that Lula and Bolsonaro you know, camps were so far apart in terms of uh, politically speaking. Um, does that mean that Brazilian society is this deeply divided? I mean, how do you make sense of that, um, the, that, uh, that there's such a big divide, so to speak, and a, such a narrow divide, too, in the sense of you know, the, uh, the population's uh, support for each side? So there's several different things to unpack here. First off, absolutely, it's deeply divided. And it's divided like it hasn't been before. It's divided almost like what we saw in Venezuela back in the 2000s or like what we see in the United States right now with Trump. I mean, that's what a lot of kind of the... That, that's the legacy of, of the Trump image and the Trump style of politics that Bolsonaro inherited and took on completely, pushing fake news and pushing you know, this nationalist agenda attacking, attacking, attacking um, the other side and the left and whatnot. Uh, and it is extremely concerning. One of the things and part of the reason of, for this division is obviously the fake news, um, the misrepresentation of things. We saw that, you know, even just around the polls, the whole uh, electoral system and everything under the elections. This was one of those moments. This election was one of those moments that was the most um, twisted and, 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 and contorted uh, in terms of fake news and just new misrepresentation and, and, and misinformation being pushed just on the daily by Bolsonaro's campaign. Uh, and so that's extremely concerning. And look, the thing is, though, Greg, 
You know, a lot of people I talked to during the elections when I was there, and I was there, you know, reporting from around the country, a lot of them are completely on board with Bolsonaro. And what they told me, even ahead of the second round vote, was, look, if Bolsonaro, first off, we know that we're in the majority, uh, Bolsonaro's people in the majority, so if Bolsonaro doesn't win, well, then we know something was wrong with the electoral system. So he should have won. And that's how come we saw his people out in the streets later on, because the idea there, it's about faith. It's almost like a religious conviction. It's not about actually having a democratic play and trying to figure out how we, how we, uh, you know, how we work together in a democratic system. No, it's about destroying your opponent, uh, and that's what we've seen just in the last little bit. And that's how come we had around the country people rallying, Bolsonaro supporters rallying in front of military barracks, calling on the military to turn out. To, to block Lula's election and, and to, to keep Bolsonaro in power. And people actually believe that. We're talking about thousands of Bolsonaro supporters who b believe that if they protested in front of the military barracks, the military was going to support them. And the fact that they actually believe that and they continue to do it for months and months and they actually thought that Bolsonaro was going to find a way to enact some sort of a coup at some point is really concerning for, for what it means for, for Brazilian democracy, for what it means going forward, and for what it means for Lula. I think most likely what we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks, in the coming months, although right now there's kind of this 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 unclear phase about how Bolsonaro's people are going to organize. But there's almost no doubt that they are going to organize as uh, as you know as an opposition, as a very clear opposition, particularly in the streets, um, particularly with fake news that's going to come against Lula. Uh, and people are going to be out in the streets just like Trump supporters have been out there. And people, we've even seen this in the news right now, uh, Greg, since Lula's inauguration, You've seen over Twitter and social media people saying, look, Lula never, he never walked up the presidential palace. He never was inaugurated. He never swore with his hand up in Congress. It didn't happen. And at any point, Bolsonaro is going to fly back from Florida. He's going to be taking power. People actually believe this. And it's on social media. It's been, this is what's passing over, you know, what's up in this and then the, the social networks amongst Bolsonaro supporters. And so it's really concerning that this is, that this is a real, this is a real reality. It shows the polarization. But it also shows the very clear intent by a certain group of people to attack Brazilian democracy, to gut the, the potential for Lula to be successful. Um, and this is one of the things that the, the Supreme Court, the Brazilian Supreme Court, has been very clear on and they've been investigating for several years are the attacks against uh, Brazilian democracy. And this is why many people have been talking about uh, potential accusations and crimes against Bolsonaro and potentially that he might actually stand trial for some of these things. And this is why, um, from what we heard from reports, was that, you know, but when he left two days early, that's because his lawyers, from what we understand, you know, advised him, hey, it might be a good idea for you to skip town for a little bit and get out of the country because they might be coming after you. The very first day after uh, Lula's inauguration, PESOL, the small left party that had split from the Workers' Party back in 2005, but is now back in the coalition, they actually um, requested from the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court ask for preventative prison from Bolsonaro for crimes, for the crimes against humanity, for lying uh, during the elections, for attacks on, on democracy and pushing coups. Um, and there are several different uh, potential crimes and accusations against Bolsonaro, going back to, of course, the Senate inquiry into COVID-19, uh, which lasted for almost eight or nine months. And when they came out, they said that Bolsonaro was uh, responsible for as many as nine different crimes, including crimes against humanity. Um, and so all this is kind of putting this into this. That's how come, you know, most likely Bolsonaro is right out of the country right now. But we're going to see what happens going forward.
Now, just turning to what uh, Lula can do to counter these uh, dangers, um, what about his own party, the Workers' Party, the PT? Um, Lula said to enjoy a massive amount of popularity, often be, uh, far beyond his own party. Um, first of all, is that still true? Uh, ha and some people even say that he has lost touch with the grassroots. Um, and is there anything to that story? Uh, and uh, if so, uh, what is or has the PT done to, uh, to connect with the grassroots? Well, I think the first thing, Greg, is just to understand that this electoral campaign that brought Lula to power, like I said, was a very broad coalition. And it wasn't just with other parties. It was social movements, grassroots movements. It was broader than anything we've ever seen before. In fact, the MST, working together with other social movements, actually created five to 7,000 different popular committees in urban communities and cities all up and down Brazil with the idea of exactly that, being able to organize for Lula's, Lula's election, but then being able to continue to organize in those communities long beyond that. Um, and so, you know, some people have had that criticism around the BT that they lost touch with the grassroots, but that criticism is actually pretty old. That's like from a decade ago at a time when kind of their local grassroots committees had failed when the PT had been in power for a very long time. What we've seen since the coup against Dilma Rousseff and particularly since Lula's jailing is kind of this overwhelming organization from below, from the grass, from grassroots uh, organizations from movements, unions and political parties behind Lula, behind Lula to, to A, to get him out of jail and to B, to get him into power. I mean, this is like the the, the ultimate rags to riches story, you know, political prisoner uh, comeback. And here he is, you know, he's just come to office. This is huge. And people in Brazil realize this. I mean, Lula represents uh, the working class and the poor. And I'll tell you what, Greg, when I was in Recife, which is northeastern Brazil, um, state of Pernambuco, which of course is where Lula's from. This is the capital of that. And there was a big rally there for Lula where he was, where he arrived. And every single person I talked to, everybody said, Lula, Lula's our guy. I mean, Lula helped me go to school. Lula, he, you know, he, he built universities where I was able to study. Lula, Lula is, is the hero of the working class. And he, particularly in the Northeast, Lula won this election because of the Northeast, Greg. He won roughly 70% in northeastern Brazil, whereas the rest of the country he either lost or was very close. So, I mean, a lot of people were talking about right after the election that Lula say, I mean, northeastern Brazil saved Brazil. And it's very true. But even in Sao Paulo, right? Remember, Lula's trajectory is super interesting because he was he's born poor in northeastern Brazil. He comes young to Sao Paulo with his family in search of work. Uh, and so many people I met on the streets of Sao Paulo on the night that Lula won, on that night, almost everybody I talked to, they said, they're proud. I'm from Pernambuco. I'm from this state. I'm from northeastern Brazil. I'm here because Lula represents me. So absolutely, he still is extremely important, extremely, extremely popular. Now, some people, obviously, he lost some support because they still believe that he was, you know, uh, he was corrupt or the, the, the con he, they still don't understand what went down. Because, But all of the convictions, every one of the, of the accusations against Lula have all been tossed out in one court or another in Brazil. So it's just ridiculous to, to believe that those convictions uh, were real. Of course, they were done by biased judge Sergio Moro with the idea of tanking him and blocking his ability to return to power in 2018. Sergio Moro, by the way, who then became justice minister under Bolsonaro and who is now a senator who just won Senate in this last election. Um, and he will, I'm sure, be very loud, as, as, as loud as he possibly can be. Um, but no, he, Lula is extremely important for the grassroots. And, and the grassroots is now 
um, organized and more kind of on fire and excited than ever before. And that's what, that's why this election was so important. That's why Lula was so important. So it'll be interesting to see how they continue to keep the grassroots mobilized. This is something that uh, Joao Stegio uh, talked about just before the first round vote in a press conference I attended in Sao Paulo. Joao Stegio, he's one of the, the you know, longtime founders of the, of the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, of course, one of the largest social movements in the Americas. And he said, what we need is a popular grassroots movement from below, like we haven't seen in decades, and they just need to push Lula all they can. Because, of course, there will be other uh, interests, there'll be other parties, there'll be other uh, people trying to push Lula in different directions. And so, obviously, the grassroots needs to keep organized. Um, but right now, at this point, there is so much unity from beyond, you know, pushing beyond Bolsonaro. Everybody's had their back against the wall. And right now, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's involved in the indigenous movement. And he said, right now, we're feeling three things. We're feeling alleviation, relief. We're feeling excitement like, you know, celebration, commemoratory, and we're feeling hope. Uh, and that's the feeling on the ground right now. Now we're going to see what the coming months, this is the honeymoon period, of course, the coming months, things will get more complicated in one way or the other. And when, you know, when, when different factions are trying to vie for this or that. But right now, um, Lula's connection with the grassroots and those grassroots organized is like never before. And just an example to really define that, Greg, is <clears throat> traditionally... Uh, in inauguration ceremonies, it's always the previous president who passes the presidential sash onto the incoming president. They walk together up the presidential ramp to Planalto Palace, which is, of course, the presidential palace, and then the, the old president passes the sash onto Lula. Of course, Bolsonaro left two days early, so he was not passing the sash, and many people were asking, I mean, this was the big question for days, what is going to happen? Who's going to pass the sash on to Lula? Is it going to be Dilma? Is it going to be, you know, Bolsonaro's vice president? What's going to happen? And the way they did it was so perfect, Greg, because they brought together this group of people that just symbolized the pure diversity of, of, of Brazil and who are Brazilians, right? You had uh, a cook, you had a black trash collector who comes from a family of catadores and recyclers in the streets. You had a disabled activist, uh, someone from the LGBT community. You had uh, a young child, 10-year-old child, black child. Um, and they all came together. Oh, and of course, um, Chief Haoni, who's the most important indigenous leader uh, in the history of Brazil. He's the guy who, went, who did all the tours back in the 80s with Sting uh, and who was actually uh, pretty critical of the Dilma Rousseff administration back in the early 2010s. He, they all walked up the presidential ramp together, arm in arm, and they put the, the presidential sash onto Lula. That just signified just so clearly <clears throat> that this is going to be a government, or Lula wants this to be a government, by the people and for the people, in which the people are, 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 are giving Lula the power to be in charge, and he's going to try and hold on to that to be sure that he's able to push, um, continue to push his policies. And one of the things we heard in, in, in Sonia Wajajara, for instance, <clears throat> she is now the the, the Minister of Indigenous um, Peoples, and she said in her very first talk with supporters, and she had said that she had been just in conversation all the time during the campaign with Lula, always talking, hey, what's going on? They'd see them in different places, and she kept talking, they kept talking about what they wanted, and then she was the one who said, let's do you know, a Ministry of Indigenous Peoples, let's do it. And with days later, Lula's talking about that up and down the country, and he did it. He made good on his promise. There she is. She's in power. So, Indigenous peoples are more excited than ever. People up and down the country are more excited than ever. Uh, there, there is hope for the first time in a very long time. Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to leave it there for now. 
Um, I was speaking to Michael Fox, freelance journalist and host and producer of the podcast Brazil on Fire. Thanks again, Mike, for having joined me today. Thanks so much, Greg. Pleasure to be here. And thank you to our audience for having joined The World on Fire. The title is uh, a <laughs> similarity to Mike's podcast. It's just a coincidence. Thanks again. <laughs>